Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured onto your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured against you. Sorry, it will be measured to you. He also told them this parable. Can the blind lead the blinds? Will they not both fall into a pit? The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when you yourself have a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you'll be able to, clearly, to see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. This is the word of God. Morning, everyone. This is the second week on the trot. I've had no voice, and so you're just going to have to bear with me. If I keel over in a coughing fit, then it wouldn't be the first time. So apologies about that. But nice to see you. I'm Johnny. I'm one of the elders here at the gate. Um, and I just want to uh, start, really, by um, telling you about a church that I know. Um, it's not this one. It's another one. And, and, and in this church, everyone gets along. They express their unity in Jesus by, by looking out for each other and really supporting one another when um, things go wrong. Sunday teams are, are just packed full of willing volunteers and, and no one ever drops out last minute. When it comes to politics and elections, the church basically comes together to agree which candidate and party most closely align with the Bible and they all vote accordingly. And when it comes to the Bible, they sit under the preaching each week and receive it for what it is. That is the risen Christ speaking through his word. In their shared devotional life, they go through a Bible reading plan and they discuss regularly how they are growing in Christ. And a couple of you are like looking at me a little bit sceptically. And before you all get up and leave the gate church, let me just tell you where this church is. It's in a little town called Nowhere on Earth. Indeed, we all want to be part of this kind of church, don't we? But the Bible spells out a very different reality, this side of heaven. One where there will be disagreement, conflict and sin between believers. So let me ask you as we start, what really bugs you about the gay church? What would you do differently? Who really frustrates you? What issue do you feel that others here just don't take seriously enough? Where, where are we being sub-biblical? Or maybe you think we're over-biblical, we take it too seriously. What kind of person do you wish you had in your gospel family? And importantly for today's passage, when you find yourself disagreeing or at odds with others in the church, how do you go about that disagreement? What does that look like? Do you kind of sit on it and kind of just kind of let your kind of bitterness or grumpiness grow? Or do you kind of withdraw from the church? Or perhaps you always air your opinion quite vocally. You know, how do you go about it when you disagree with other believers in the church? I don't know how many of you were here last week, but essentially this is part two of that sermon in this section, Jesus is speaking to his followers, i.e. not to the whole world out there. He's speaking to his followers. And last week, he taught us how to relate to our enemies, namely those outside the church. Obviously, you can have enemies inside the church, but for the most part, he was, talking, he was addressing how believers are to relate to their enemies outside the church in love, extending undeserved kindness, because this is how God treated us when we were his enemies. 
He offered us the undeserved gift of eternal life in his kingdom. Well, today is part two. In today's passage, Jesus is teaching his followers how to relate, not to those outside the church, but to fellow Christians. And more than that, he teaches us how to navigate particularly disagreement and tension with others in the church. Now, where do I see that? Well, first of all, we need to note that throughout today's passage, Jesus has moved last week from speaking about enemies all the way through. Now he's talking about brothers, verse 42. Secondly, there are three little sections to the passage, and all of them have some sense of conflict or tension or or, or disagreement. So in 37 to 38, we have the temptation to judge and condemn Christians. 39 to 40, one blind person leads another into a pit, right? Hardly your optimum Christian relationship. And 41, 42, a Christian is picking at his brother's faults or errors. So here, Jesus is teaching his followers how to go about disagreement with other Christians. And what he said last week, which most of you probably heard last week, is true today. That whether it's with our enemies or fellow believers, citizens of his kingdom must relate to others in ways that reflect their king. As Christ related to his enemies and his people, part two, in the same way should we relate to them. The way that we relate to others in church puts on display the kingdom to which we belong. When we navigate problems and disagreement, exemplifying the character and work of Jesus, we demonstrate that we belong to him. But that's not it. Just as Jesus was concerned to win over his enemies, the end goal here isn't just to be like Jesus, but to win over the believer who might be in error or sin. Well, how do we do that? How must we do that if we belong to Jesus? How should we disagree with others in the church? That's where we're That's where we're headed today. That's what we're looking at today. And as I normally do, I'm just going to give you what I think is a summary of Jesus' response to that question and then unpack it bit by bit. So I think Jesus' answer is this. Relate to Christian brothers and sisters graciously by following Christ's humble example intently in order to serve the church fruitfully. So let's see where I get that from. Please have your Bibles open. Most of you look like you do. But page 1034... Have a look down at, at verses, uh, well, at verse 37 as we start that first one. Relate to brothers and sisters graciously. So verse 37, Jesus says, Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. So there's four little commands there. Okay, so the first uh, command is do not judge. And that's one, isn't it? Um, the, the, the culture around us uses to justify a kind of you-do-you kind of ethic. But, but Jesus doesn't mean don't say if something is ethically or spiritually wrong. After, after all, if this was what Jesus meant, he'd be falling foul of his own teaching in this very passage, not to mention every other New Testament apostle who throughout their letters um, kind of challenges error and sin and calls Christians to do the same. Even in verse 42 here, a bit further down, we'll look at it later, but Jesus has the goal, his goal of this teaching is that his followers know how to correct someone in the church. So this isn't a kind of no one can judge me kind of thing going on here. 
But, but what, do, what does he mean? What does Jesus mean when he says, do not judge? Well, from verse 41 and 42, it's the context of Jesus' teaching here. Jesus roots this command in a situation where a Christian disagrees with another Christian's view on something minor, right? A, a speck of sawdust rather than a plank. If this were a theological disagreement or issue, it wouldn't be over whether Jesus is God or not, or whether he rose from the dead. That's a plank. It might be, perhaps, you know, which Bible translation we use in church. Or if it was an ethical issue, we're not talking about whether it's right or wrong to sleep with people outside marriage. Jesus' teaching is clear. That's a plank, right? But perhaps it would be whether a Christian finds that they're just being a bit overbearing in conversation, something kind of normal, you know, Christian battle in the Christian life. Or if it were a political disagreement, the issue wouldn't be about whether we should serve the poor, but maybe about how how the best way it is to go about that. You see, Jesus has a category for error and sin that keeps people out of his kingdom, planks. But he also has a category for that which does not, i.e. speck of sawdust. And we're talking about the latter here, okay? We're talking about the speck of sawdust, Because we're prone, aren't we, to judging specks of sawdust as planks. We're prone to give our two-penny piece on someone's salvation if they disagree with us on a minor issue, which we've elevated to the defining hallmark of saving faith. And by judging them in this way, we're putting ourselves in the place of the judge, namely God. Or it might just be a really minor issue in church, like the volume of the music is a classic, isn't it? Or the way we set up the room, or whatever, those kind of minor issues. You see, not judging and being patient and kind is to get our place right in the pecking order. We don't see the heart or understand other people's motivations or know where they've come from or what they've experienced or the conversations that have gone on behind the scenes to come to that decision or whatever. We aren't God. We don't see the situation in its entirety. That kind of judgment belongs to God alone who understands all. And so that's the first command Jesus says. That's the longest. Don't worry, we're not going to spend all that time on all four of them. But he says, do not judge. Secondly, and linked to that, Jesus says, do not condemn So the word in the original language here just simply means don't lack compassion on that person with whom you disagree or the people you disagree with or the church you've taken umbrage with. Don't condemn. Thirdly, forgive. This is a classic one. We all know forgive. And yet actually the word here, again, is actually wider than just pardoning someone's sin against you. The word here in the original language means releasing people from binds. So that that means not binding fellow believers' consciences on issues which we are free to disagree on. Because we all have those issues, don't we, about which we feel particularly strongly. But what often happens in churches is that Christians can be so vocal about them, trying to urge others to see their way, that those who are undecided or take a, a different view on the issue don't feel in a position to, to, to say so because they just feel scared that they could be rejected relationally by those people. Don't do that, Jesus says. Don't bind. Navigate disagreement in ways that don't bind the consciences of other Christians, of those people that God has set free. Fourthly, give, Jesus says. Give generously to people you disagree with. 
I don't know if you got the little picture there in verse 38. I looked and it was like, whoa, that's agricultural. I'm going to have to think about this one. The picture is basically of like a bucket and grain being poured into the bucket. And it's coming in and they're stamping it down so you can fill more grain in the bucket. It starts to overflow into the lap of your garment, essentially. And this is the picture that Jesus used for how Christians should give to one another. That is lavishly and generously, even to those we disagree with. And Jesus sums up his message with a little proverb there in verse 38. He says, for the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And that's quite key for what I haven't spoken about in those, those, those commands. He's saying, don't judge or you'll be judged. Don't condemn or you'll be condemned. Forgive and you'll be forgiven. So at one very important level, Jesus is saying, this is how relationships are going to work in the world and in the church. If you forgive others you will be forgiven. They will forgive you. That, I mean, that's, you don't need to be a you know, Bible scholar to understand that one. That just happens, doesn't it? But, but his overriding point here is what we said at the beginning, is that how we relate to Christians must reflect the way that God relates to us. So as, as recipients of God's grace, relate to other Christians graciously. Well, I don't know, is this how you relate to everyone in our church? I say everyone because it's, it's easy to relate to some people like this, isn't it? Is this how you relate to everyone in church, to your gospel family or to the person who gets on your nerves or to us pastors or whoever it might be? Well, if you're anything like me, you know that that isn't always the case. But Jesus has good news. And, and that moves us on to the second part of Jesus' teaching. We, we are to relate to our brothers and sisters graciously by following Christ's humble example intently. Have a look at verse 39. And here Jesus uses a parable to teach exactly the same thing. So we're not like moved on to a different, like, oh, that's that done, you know, move on. It's exactly the same point. So he says this. He also told them this parable. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? You see, you have two Christians in this parable, and one who sees, in inverted commas, the sin or the error of another. And Jesus agrees that this latter person is at fault. They need correction. Jesus describes them as blind. They need help. But that doesn't automatically put the first person in the right, because Jesus describes them as blind as well. And, and, and in the context, this is because the Christian who wants to correct their brother or sister this, this particular Christian who's wanting to correct them is doing so in ways that go against what Jesus has just taught. They are judgmental about it. They are quick to condemn. They are interested in winning an argument. Contrary to the picture Jesus has painted in 37 to 38 of the gracious believer, this person is self-righteous. They proudly navigate their disagreement with confidence that they themselves are right, self-righteousness. Jesus says to be self-righteous is to be blind. And he's clear that a self-righteous approach will never win the person. Blind people cannot lead the blind. Last week, we saw that those who live by the sword die by the sword. Those who disagree self-righteously can only expect to receive a self-righteous response. But Jesus wants more for his followers than that. He wants them to correct and be corrected humbly 
as he would have us. Therefore, in any tension or disagreement, we must intently imitate the humble example of our King, the Lord Jesus. Again, last week, we saw, didn't we, that we do this by imitating the humility of how Jesus put an end to our disagreement and conflict with God himself, namely through the cross. Jesus went to the cross to be judged for your sin. That was supposed to humble us. How can we now self-righteously judge others who Jesus equally died for? Jesus went to the cross to bear your condemnation. Who are we to condemn a person whose condemnation Christ bore in his body? He went to the cross to win your forgiveness. As forgiven people, are we unwilling to forgive those whom Jesus has forgiven? He went to the cross giving his life to give you every spiritual blessing now and into eternity, making your bucket overflow. Would you hold anything back? Are we above Jesus? Or no, verse 40. Really important little verse. Have a look. Jesus says, the student is not above the teacher. And the original word there for student is actually disciple, right? The disciple of Jesus is not above the one they follow, the one discipling them. So he calls us, verse 40, to be fully trained in the way of the teacher. That is fully trained in the way and pattern of the cross. Not only was it that cross that crushed our own self-righteousness and welcomed us into God's kingdom, but the cross is where apparent defeat led to victory. Point being, only when we imitate Christ's humility in his cross-likeness will we win over those who may be in sin and error. So don't judge because your judgment has been taken. Don't condemn because in Christ there's no condemnation for you. Forgive because you're forgiven. And give because Christ has given his life for you on the cross. So there it is. Relate to your brothers and sisters graciously by following Christ's humble example intently. And finally, why do we do this? Well, in order to serve the church fruitfully. And so in the final section, 41 to 42, Jesus essentially sums up his message to his followers using a little story. And it's really funny. It's a really good story. Again, you have two Christian brothers and one has like this speck of sawdust in their eye, which needs removing. Granted, it's like, oh, can I get that little eyelash for you? It's that kind of thing, right? He's got the speck of sawdust in his eye and in comes Mr. Self-Righteous to do the job. But this dude's got a whooping 15-foot load-bearing joist in his eye. And yet his greatest concern is his brother's speck of sawdust in his eye. Verse 41 is the obvious question, isn't it? Why, why do you look at that speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You see, here's the person who's got beef with a fellow Christian. But Jesus is clear. This beef is small fry. It's a speck of sawdust. It's one of those minor issues. 
Whereas this hot-headed guy has got his, on his hobby horse and is fuming about his brother's error, completely missing the much more major issue, which is the tree trunk of self-righteousness in his eye. The kind of self-righteousness which, unlike the sawdust, can actually keep people out of Jesus' kingdom, which is for the meek, the lowly, and the humble. I mean, it would be, it, it would be a pretty hilarious story if it wasn't for the fact that this issue tears churches apart. A failure to do what Jesus teaches here creates bitterness, anger, division, cliques, hearsay, slagging people off behind their backs, which almost inevitably is the self-righteous opposite of the non-judgmental, non-condemnatory non-condemnatory, forgivingly patient and generously gracious approach that Jesus graciously exhibits and exemplifies for all his kingdom followers. What does Jesus say about such people? What does he call them? Verse 42, loser, got that wrong, no, hypocrite. You hypocrite. It's hypocrisy to claim citizenship in this humble king's kingdom while being painfully self-righteous. It's like oil and water. They just cannot go together. But there's hope. And this is where the, the end goal of this whole section, Jesus says, verse 42, he doesn't say there's no hope for you, hypocrite. He says, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So whether Jesus is saying kind of that we should get rid of self-righteousness, humbling ourselves at Jesus' cross and entering his kingdom for the first time, or whether this is part of the normal Christian life as we ongoingly repent for the indwelling self-righteousness that still exists in our heart, well, it hardly matters. Jesus' message is clear. When we resemble our humble king, who, quote, made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, well, then we will be fruitful for God's kingdom, for his church. Because verse 42, you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. This is really important. With self-righteousness and arrogance, two blind people end up in a pit. With humility and grace, both a plank and the speck of sawdust is removed, leaving clear sightedness on both parts. This is how we should navigate disagreement and tension and sin in the church, in a way that will bear kingdom fruit. This is how we should challenge others where there might be error. Relate to brothers and sisters graciously by following Christ's example intently in order to serve the church fruitfully. Got that right? I don't know if you saw. Um, I don't know if you saw the census data that came out this week. See that some people are nodding. Um, basically, the recent census data has shown shock horror, right? That the UK now is a minority Christian country, <laughs> with forty-eight percent identifying as Christian, and yet something like six percent ticks that they go to church. Something even lower ticked that the Bible was God's authoritative word. And this nominal Christianity shouldn't surprise us one bit because Jesus promises it. 
Look down just a little bit further below our passage in verse 46. This governs the whole of Jesus' section here. Jesus asks, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Why do you call me Lord and do not do what I say? And this is where we'll close. Brothers and sisters, Jesus isn't giving us his words here so we can pop them onto a fridge magnet or a bumper sticker or use them to justify a cultural trend. No, he's speaking to us so that we who call him Lord would do what he says. Jesus is speaking to you and to me. He's addressing your actual thoughts about an actual relationship with that actual person in church or gospel family who you see things differently to. He's speaking into that thing in church that you would scrap or do completely differently. Who is that person? What is that thing that you do differently? What is the issue you feel you have to convince others of? More importantly, how do you navigate that disagreement? Do you withdraw? Do you throw in passive-aggressive comments in conversation or maybe online? Do you just keep silent but grow in bitterness and it's like kind of withdraw a little bit? Do you throw mud behind that person's back? Do you waltz in there with little to no self-reflection and denounce their error? Do you try and gather a following within church around issues which might bind people's consciences or cause relational drift? Or do you humbly and patiently care for that person or people so deeply that you do want to win them to something better for Jesus' glory? Well, Jesus has spoken to us on how we should go about these issues so that we would do what he says. And as I close, let me just give you four brief ways to apply his teaching. Navigating disagreement, conflict, sin in the church so that good fruit emerges. These are just four little things that I think are helpful. They're not exhaustive. But first, when you disagree on something, be self-reflective about your motivations. Why is it that you care about this so much? It might be that it's for Jesus' glory, but often we feel passionate about issues which put us out in some way, or which, when disagreed with, make us feel insecure in our place in the church or in God's kingdom. Be self-reflective and self-aware, knowing that no disagreement or difference in opinion can take away God's grace and love to you in Christ. You're on solid ground, and knowing that solid ground will align your approach to disagreement to what Jesus has taught here. Secondly, be slow to speak and quick to listen. James says this in another New Testament letter. Be a Christian means admitting how self-deceptively sinful and delusioned our own hearts can be. And this is key. This means the Christian default position should be to not trust ourselves on any given issue. That's so contrary to what we normally do, isn't it? We just back ourselves. We have self-deceptive hearts. That's what Jeremiah says. And this will just give us pause before we roll on in with our two-penny piece. It will provide time to consider why this or that happens like it does in church, why a person might hold those views or have acted in that way. It will allow the spirit's conviction of where you might have judgmentally jumped to conclusions without knowing the full picture that God sees. 
He's slow to speak. Thirdly, be like Jesus in his grace. It's quite a catch, wasn't it? He's been gracious and patient with you. You cannot escape his love and commitment to you until the end. So be gracious and patient with others. Even if you strongly disagree and something really does need to be said, does the way you go about that exemplify God's lavish grace for you in Jesus? And finally, this is the end goal again of Jesus' words, be eager to use disagreement to serve others. Those kind of things seem a little bit at odds, doesn't it? But I've brought them together because I think that's what Jesus is saying. Because this is what it's all about. Jesus' expectation is when we do the above, we genuinely can serve others by taking specks out of their eye. At, the gospel, at, 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 um, at this church, we heed the Bible's call to rebuke one another in love, in patience, in long-suffering, As elders, can I just say publicly that we welcome people showing us our blind spots, which we know are there. And so should we all welcome that. And when we do, when we do say something, if it is right to say something, let's make sure we've been self-reflective, slow to speak, like Jesus in his unfading grace, removing first the plank of self-righteousness in our own eye, so that when we do speak, Our kind words will build up, not tear down. We should have confidence of this, that that even through disagreement and dispute, Jesus' church really will be built up and not torn down. Shall I pray? Heavenly Father, we know that these things over the last couple of weeks are just so foreign to us. We don't love enemies. We hate them. Father, we have absolute confidence in our own in our own positions and beliefs, even though we have such little grasp on your word, such little grasp on, on the motivations and situations that happen behind closed doors which you see. Father, we just pray that that would, not, that that would give us a humility. We pray that you do that work in our proud and self-righteous hearts. I pray for each one of us, Lord, that you would show us by the power of your spirit that This is clearly something that we do and that we would do what you say, Lord Jesus. We love you. We call you Lord. And so help us do what you say, we pray. For his glory. Amen.